Well, hey, good morning. How are we doing? Um, we are going to go to the book of, can you guess? Can you guess? Uh, Jonah would be where we're going. You were paying attention to the video there. We are starting a new series. We're going to spend the next four weeks in the book of Jonah. We have been doing some topical preaching this summer. And I would just tell you there's something um, that I just enjoy going to a book of the Bible and going through it verse by verse and chapter by chapter. And I hope you guys understand, even when we're doing topical studies, we're typically opening God's Word. We're saying, take your Bibles, turn to this passage, and we're our intent, our desire, what you guys can kind of um, grade us on is when we open God's Word, where are we getting our main points? Where are we getting our ideas? And you should be able every week to be able to look at the text and say, okay, that's where he got that, that's where he got that, that's where he got that. Our goal every week is to take you to God's Word and just kind of unpack or let His Word breathe so that you're hearing what it teaches, not what we think. And that being said, Jonah is kind of a, a shorter book. It is four chapters. It is 48 verses. And we're going to spend four weeks there. And you're like, oh my goodness, I already know the story of Jonah. There's this fish thing and all of this. Well, I taught Jonah about 10 years ago. It's the last time I've taught it. it was back in 2011. And I would just tell you, even in studying it this time, I'm seeing things that I didn't see last time. So I would hope and pray that as we as a church go through this, we're learning some things we might not know, but maybe even more importantly, we're finding ourselves in the story. Because here's the, de here's the deal. In Jonah, there just aren't that many characters. There's um, a fish. And if you're going to find yourself in the story, you're probably not the fish, okay? Um, God is mentioned in the story. It's interesting. As you think about the story of Jonah, everybody's like, oh, Jonah and the fish. Well, the fish is mentioned four times. Jonah is mentioned 18 times in the book. God's mentioned 38 times in 48 verses. I'm going to argue all day that he is the star of the show. The book is about God. It's revealing something about who he is. It's not about evangelism. That's a piece, but this is a story about God and his mercy and his relentless pursuit of us. But you're not the fish. You're not God. You're probably not the sailors, though you might be. You could actually be the people of Nineveh who are going to receive Jonah's message. That could be the case. But if you're here on a Sunday morning, odds are you're going to identify best with the character of Jonah. So find yourself in the story, see the things that he's struggling with, and compare your life and the choices that you're making to the choices that you see him make in the text. Let's jump into verse 1, Jonah 1. We're just going to go through chapter 1 this morning. Here's how it starts. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amadi, saying, okay, j just really, really quickly here, um, this isn't a once-upon-a-time kind of story. Jonah's a real person. And one of the first ways that we know that is the way the book begins when it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amadi. Okay? You don't tell about a fairy tale or a, a, or a fictional character by describing his heritage, who his daddy was, usually. Unless you're watching Star Wars. And then you've got the Luke, I'm your father. Or, or maybe Lord of the Rings, you've got the whole Bilbo and Frodo thing going. So, well, maybe sometimes you do give all the lineage in a fairy tale. I don't know. 
But here's what I'll tell you. When the Bible starts to talk about a prophet and he tells you who his father is, there's already an implied statement. This is a real person. He has a heritage. And it's interesting, Jonah's talked about earlier in the Old Testament in 2 Kings. I'll have these verses on the screen. 2 Kings 14. There it's talking about a king of the northern kingdom of Israel. It says, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. Verse 24, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I, I always find that interesting when you hear the story of the kings of either um, Judah or Israel, that their entire life is summed up in one phrase. He did what was righteous in the name of the Lord. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Jonah is prophesying during the reign of Jeroboam, and you need to understand, he's an evil king. Text just said it. Was he a good guy, bad guy, bad guy? He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so it goes on to say this in verse 25, that Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel. And he spoke by his servant Jonah, the prophet of the, uh, Jonah, the son of Amadi, the prophet, who was from Gath Hephar. So now we know his dad's name, we know his hometown, and we know that Jonah was a real prophet between 800 and 750 BC, giving prophecy to a real king. And that king, though he was evil, he was used by God to expand and secure the borders of Israel against another country. That country was Assyria. And if that's not enough proof, as we turn to the New Testament, you can read in Matthew 12, 40 and 41. This is Jesus speaking. It says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up uh, at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So, Jesus references two things in relation to Jonah. The fact that he was actually eaten by a fish, was in the belly three days and three nights, and that he went on and prophesied to the Assyrian nation, to specifically the city of Nineveh, and that they repented. And he says, Jesus says, the people I'm speaking to now, that generation can testify against you because I'm greater than Jonah and you're not listening to me. So Jesus is referring not just to Jonah, but some of the events recorded in the book of Jonah has fact, historical fact. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a, a make-believe story. But see, here's our problem. The book of Jonah, more than any other book in the entire Bible, has been under attack by secular critics over and over again because you got this problem of the guy getting eaten by a fish. Augustine in 409 AD said that the story of Jonah was the laughingstock of the pagans. Martin Luther said, if it weren't in the Bible, I should take it for a lie. So we've got to make a decision as we get into this story. Did a guy really get eaten by a fish and did he live in the belly for three days and three nights? And, 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 I, and I got to tell you, um, sadly, there's some churches in our community that would go, that harvest pastor, he's stone cold crazy. He's teaching from Jonah as if it actually happened. Like, like he doesn't get it. He's, he's not the brightest um, bulb in the closet. But well, here's, here's what's interesting to me. As you consider Jonah, as you make your determination of whether you can believe the events that we're going to be talking about, can I just bring your attention to a couple other things? In, in Numbers 22, there's this guy by the name of Balaam. 
And he's riding along on his donkey, and he's not happy with the way the donkey's riding, so he starts to hit the donkey with the stick, and the donkey turns around and goes, why are you hitting me with the stick? So he gets into a conversation with his donkey. Okay, Shrek moment there with the donkey talking. You know what I mean? So, so you've got that. In Daniel 3, you've got three men thrown into a furnace, but they don't burn. And they're just walking around inside the fire, and when the King Nebuchadnezzar calls them out. Their, their, their clothes aren't singed. They don't even smell smoky. In Genesis 1, God spoke the universe into existence. In Genesis 6 and 7, he's going to flood the entire creation, preserving only Noah and his family. Uh, Moses is going to hear God speak to him from a burning bush. He's going to part a Red Sea and a nation's going to walk through on dry ground, and then the Egyptian army is going to get swallowed up by that very sea. Moses is going to be in the wilderness, and he's going to hit a rock, and a river of water is going to gush forward. So I'm just going to tell you something here. Like, go to the New Testament. God comes in human form. He's, he's born of a virgin. God himself dies on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And we're thrown by the fish thing? Like, like, like that's the thing that we say, oh, that couldn't happen? Yeah, God born of a virgin, dying in our place to demonstrate his love for us. And the fish thing is the thing that throws us off. I just want you to consider that in light of the rest of Scripture. Because you either take God's word for being God's word, or it is not. It is either a supernatural story, or it is not. And we serve a supernatural God who has chosen to reveal himself to us sometimes in supernatural ways. The entire story of the Bible and its preservation and the fact that we can open it and read it and pull it up on our phones, it's supernatural by definition. And it's either true or it's not. If you don't believe in the supernatural, pack it up in Genesis. It's interesting, one of our... um, founding fathers of our country, Thomas Jefferson, who believed the Bible. He just didn't believe in the supernatural. It's been told that he went through the entire New Testament and cut out all of the miracles with a uh, pair of scissors. I'll, I'll believe the gospel, but I won't believe the supernatural. And the problem is if you miss that, you miss the character and the nature of who God is. So two weeks ago, some of you have heard of this, some of you have not. Two weeks ago at our Saturday night service, a woman came up after the service was done. I was actually down preaching in North Indy. We had Eric Klingel, who's one of our pastors in the Fremont, up at the Fremont uh, Church up there. Dan Cook was here last week. Eric was here the week before. He was preaching on Saturday night. And after the service, a woman came up, for, up front. She's not from our church. She'd been in a ministry in Grand Rapids, and um, she was struggling with demon oppression. Now, a little bit more background in our biblical soul care here, we've been struggling with an uptick in spiritual warfare. We've been dealing with some people that have been struggling with spiritual oppression, with demonic activity, looking to be set free from that. So what's been going on in the background, we don't make a big deal about it, but for the last six weeks, several of our pastors, my wife's been involved in the soul care, Brian Smoots and his wife, They've been talking with missionaries overseas. They've been doing a lot of background research on some of these topics. How do you deal with this? Are we doing this the right way? Making sure that they're double-checking every way that they're approaching the demonic activity that they've 
suddenly found themselves encountered with through the soul care. This woman that came in two weeks ago, she had nothing to do with our soul care ministry. She was random. She just came in off the street. And a ministry had said, I want you to go to a church and I want you to read this, this piece of paper to pastors. It was scripture. It was prayers on it. And um, she came up to one of our younger pastors and began to read those passages. And all of a sudden she couldn't complete a sentence. She, she couldn't continue to read. Uh, Chris Moeller was in the room. He's one of the guys that's been dealing with some of this in our soul care. And, and he was, they got him to come up. He talked to the woman. And as he talked to the woman, again, she was struggling. She couldn't read what she had been told to find a church and, and read this to a pastor. And as she started to read it again to Chris, she paused. And Chris looked at her and she's like, keep reading. And uh, the woman looked at him and said, you have no authority over me. And Chris, and Chris looked, he realized that he wasn't necessarily talking to the woman anymore. And he said, you know what, you're right. I don't have any authority over you. And by the way, Chris said this calmly. He said, but Jesus Christ does. And you have no authority in this place. And I would ask that you leave. Woman throws her body down on the ground. She starts to scream. She starts to howl. Several of our elders gather around. Brian Smoots was there with his wife, Jenny, who's also been working through this in the background, and they pray over this lady, and they laid hands on this lady, and she calmed down, and she stood up, and she said, silence. It's quiet. They're gone. So what do you do with that story? I wasn't there. I didn't witness it. Some of you were, might have been there. Most of you would not have been. What do we do with that? Is that a true story or not a true story? I call Eric Klingle that night. I'm like, hey, how'd preaching go tonight? He's like, things have changed at Spring Lake since I was there. And um, he goes, I'll tell you this. If that lady was faking, give her the Grammy right now. He goes, that was incredible to witness. He goes, no way in the world that thing was fake. But see, if we don't believe the supernatural, we don't know how to process that thing. And I would just tell you, there are things going on all around us that are beyond what our eye can see. We're engaged in a spiritual battle. We serve a supernatural God who will move in supernatural ways, sometimes to get our attention. And that's the story of Jonah. So in this first part of the chapter, I just want to make, you, make it very, very clear. I believe it's a true story. What we're going to read in chapters 1 and chapter 2, the big idea this morning is simply this, followers follow. Pretty complicated there, followers follow. That's a big idea. I, I hope I don't have to expound on that very much, but, but sometimes we take it for granted. We call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, and then we find ourselves doing anything that would look like following. Look back at verse 1. We'll continue. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amadi, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. Verse 3, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So, a couple problems in the text. First of all, i got to keep saying this word, Tarshish. You should never have two SHs in the same syllable. You guys know I struggle with the English language quite a bit on a regular basis. I'm going to struggle to continue to say Tarshish, so we're just going to translate it Cleveland for the rest of the message, okay? <laughs> so, so he went to Cleveland. It'll just be easier for me. You know what I mean, okay? 
But here's what I want you to notice. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, to call out against it, for the evil has come up against me. And then verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee. We don't see this in our text, but that arise, go to Nineveh, it's contrasted. He said, arise, go to Nineveh, and the text says, and he arose and went to Cleveland. Opposite direction. Now, do you have a map? Can we get that picture of on the map? Like, he didn't just miss the designated city. Like, like he didn't kind of get near Nineveh and get lost like the GBS malfunctioned when he got close, okay? There's some intent in Jonah's decision to head to Tarshish. That, that would have been the western edge of the known world at the time. And God says, hey, I need you to go to Nineveh. And he's like, mm, I got a better idea. I'm going to go the other direction. But I do want you to see this in the text, though it, it talks about going to this city, Tarshish. I promise you that's not his destination. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Do you see where he was really trying to get to? He was trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. That was the destination. Prophet of the Lord, given a command, and, and his destination is the opposite direction to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, now, as a prophet of the Lord, I would think that you'd have some knowledge of previous parts of the Old Testament, don't you think? And, and, and could it be that there's a psalm written 300 years before Jonah's time? I wonder if he was familiar with Psalm 139, where it says, where can I go from your presence or where can I flee from your spirit? Maybe Jonah was aware of it, maybe he was not, but the idea that a prophet could flee the presence of the Lord? How in the world could that be? But yet that was the goal. And, and by the way, he was set to achieve that goal. I don't want you to miss this in verse 3. One verse, seven verbs. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. Oh, hey, by the way, when you're fleeing the presence of the Lord and you're looking to get somewhere else away from the presence of the Lord, there's always a ship. There's always going to be a way. There's always going to be a group of people, circumstances that will help you in your rebellion. But he went down to Joppa. He found the ship. He paid the fare. He went down into it to go with them to part to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Seven verbs, one verse. This wasn't like, ah, I'll, I'll wait and see what happens. He is actively going against the thing that God has commanded him to do. So here's a question. Why does Jonah run? If you're keeping notes, just three things. Why does Jonah run? Here, here's one suggestion. Fear. Absolute fear. This command to go to Nineveh, you need to understand Assyria is the superpower of the world at this time. Uh, and they're vicious. They're absolutely vicious. Jonah is writing somewhere between 800 and 750 B.C. And in 722 B.C., Assyria will come in and wipe out the northern kingdom. They'll become captives. They'll become slaves to the nation of Assyria. So, so they're, they're a strong, strong nation. Nineveh 
At the time of Jonah, it's estimated that it had more than a million people living in that city. It was not a small city. Nineveh, we know from archaeology, has a wall that surrounded the city. It was 33 feet high and 49 feet thick. You could race chariots around the, the, the walls of the city. It was so well fortified. It was a strong city in the midst of a strong people. And this is where the book of Jonah takes its first outrageous turn. When God tells Jonah to go and call them to repentance, call out their sin, this has never happened anywhere in the Old Testament. It's the only time that God tells one of his prophets to leave the country and go to a foreign nation and basically witness to them to call them to repentance. Can you throw off that map of Iraq? So this is current day um, Iraq. Um, there's no Nineveh on the map, but if you look in the northern part of the country, you'll see that um, city Mosul. That's Nineveh. Mosul is current day Nineveh. The ruins of the city of Nineveh are, are basically part of the city of Mosul. How many of you guys have been to Mosul? Probably not many, maybe a soldier. I've never been to Mosul. I've been to Erbil. Erbil's about 40 kilometers from Mosul. I was there in 2008. I was in Iraq, and it was interesting. I spent most of my time in Baghdad. When I was in Baghdad and I'd leave the green zone, I would be sent into the city with 12 or 24 soldiers, depending on where we were going. When I was in Erbil, I would walk through the market with one guy carrying a pistol, which was really weird to me because at the time, Mosul was the last fortified city at the last strong holding of the Taliban. Much of the rest of the country had fallen by 2008, but that was the strong place. And the stories coming out of Mosul were gruesome. If you were a Christian in, in Mosul, um, your kids were being sacrificed before your eyes. We were reading in the papers back in 2008 that there were beheadings going on in Mosul. It was a mess. It was a wicked place. And the idea of going the 50 kilometers from Erbil to Mosul would have been unheard of. And that's what Jonah finds himself being commanded to do. God's going, hey, go into the heart of the enemy, go into the heart of the city, and call out against them. So I'm sure that involved some fear. Um, if you were judging God's plan on its chances of success, um, not great. Chances of death, really great. Chances of success, not great. So I'm sure there was fear there. Here's the second reason, hatred. Jonah hated the Assyrians. Back to 2 Kings 14, where we're talking about Jonah and his time with Jeroboam. It says in verse 26, For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. Verse 27, But the Lord had said that he would not blot out the name of Israel from under the heavens, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Interesting verse because what it says is because God's made some promises to Israel, he will not let them perish. They're in peril because of Assyria. And he's saying, no, I'm going to preserve my land. And it says that he does it by the hand of Jeroboam. And we just read about Jeroboam that he did what was wicked in the sight of the Lord. So God's going to use a wicked king to rescue his people from Assyria. Why would God choose to use a wicked guy? And I'm just going to tell you that's going to be a repeated theme in the book of Jonah, that sometimes God is going to accomplish his purposes in ways 
that are unexpected. Jonah had spent his whole career working with Jeroboam, prophesying, giving the word of the Lord, helping him restore the borders. Assyria was the enemy, and now he was called to witness to them. And I don't want to jump the story too much, but if you just go to the beginning of chapter 4 of Jonah, in chapter 3, Jonah preaches to the city. The people actually repent, and then Jonah responds this way in 4.1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That, that this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In essence, Jonah just revealed his heart back in chapter 1. You told me to go to Nineveh, and the reason I didn't go was I was scared that you were going to do what you said you might do, that you might actually show mercy on these people, and I hate them. Jonah knew that when God gives you an opportunity to speak for him, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to see God's word transform somebody's heart and life, and it's going to lead them to saving faith or repentance, or a second thing is going to happen. They're going to reject the word of the Lord, and the hatred that they have towards God is now going to spill over onto you, and you're going to be maligned. And Jonah didn't want either one of those to happen. Jonah knew that if he were even to do what God asked him to do, to go to Nineveh and to call for their repentance, his own countrymen would have an issue with that. Like if God hadn't told him to do this, if another Israelite had come up with the plan, hey, let's go try to evangelize Nineveh, like, like they would have called that guy a traitor. And Jonah knows that if he goes, not only is he fearful of the Assyrians, he hates these people so bad and he knows that he'll be hated by his own countrymen for doing what God's asked him to do. So, so Jonah is at a crossroads. Jonah's at a crossroads. He couldn't see any good reason for God's command, so why should he obey it? And at this moment, he fails to recognize that maybe God's doing a greater work. Maybe he has a greater perspective than Jonah has, but because Jonah can't see it, well, then we get down to the third reason, the real reason why Jonah didn't go to Nineveh. I don't believe it was based completely in fear or in hatred. Here's the real reason, the main reason. He didn't want to go. It's just rebellion. It's just absolute rebellion that is in Jonah's heart. There was no lack of clarity in what God asked him to do. It says in Jonah 1.1, arise, go to Nineveh. What part of no I think I've said this as a parent sometimes to my kid. Like, what, what, what part of no are you struggling to understand? Like, there's no lack of clarity in God's command. There's no confusion. You need to understand, ignorance is not rebellion. I think there's sometimes we're just not clear on what God would have us do or what his word might say. We just, we don't know. That's not rebellion. Discouragement is not rebellion. Trying to do the right thing and falling short trying to do the right thing, failing, having to go back, seek repentance. Ignorance is not rebellion. Discouragement, trying to do the right thing is not rebellion. He's basically, Jonah is saying, I know exactly what God has commanded me to do. There's no lack of clarity, and I'm not going to do it. It's a refusal to do what God clearly requires. Hey, has God ever asked you to do something you don't want to do? Has he ever asked you to... Um, 
um, submit to a boss. By the way, that word submit, it's a little bit of an oxymoron. Submit implies that you don't want to do what you're about to be asked to do, right? If, if you wanted to do what the boss told you to do, that's not submission, that's agreement. So, so the whole idea of being asked to do something by God, you're in a moment where you're called to submit to what he's calling you to do, which means you don't necessarily feel like doing it. Have you ever been confronted with the choice to forgive somebody that you're just not wanting to forgive? Have you ever felt that nudge of the Holy Spirit to share your faith, but you're really scared of what it will do to the friendship, to the relationship? Listen, it's rebellion when we know the right thing to do and we just say, we're not going to do it. So sure, I'm sure fear entered into the equation. I'm sure hatred entered into the, occasion, uh, into the equation. But the real thing was, he didn't feel like doing what God asked him to do. In teaching Jonah 10 years ago, I use this definition. It's been used in our church quite a bit. Faith is believing the word of God, defining faith. Faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel because God promises a good result. The, the, the implication there is there are going to be sometimes I'm going to choose to do what God calls me to do even when I don't feel like it. You should be able to identify things in your life that you're choosing to do in spite of the fact that you don't feel like it every day. It's healthy. You should be able to identify things in your life that you're not doing because God said, no, I don't want you to do that. You should be making these choices every day. These are the things that are the markers of a life that is submitted to somebody else. George MacDonald, a theologian, he said it this way, instead of asking yourself whether you believe or not, Ask yourself whether you have this day done one thing because he said do it or once abstained because he said do not do it. It is simply absurd to say you believe in him if you do not do anything he tells you. I don't think you can state it any clearer than that. I am I a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, here's a clue. Followers follow. Are you doing the things that he's called you to do? Are you not doing the things that he's told you to abstain from? And this is where I think we connect so well with Jonah in this story. Because the truth is, I think there are seasons and there are things in all of our lives that we're like, I'll do, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, but Lord, don't make me do that. Don't touch that thing. That's the thing that I won't give up. And what we see progress in the story of Jonah is a result of when we choose open rebellion and refuse to do the things that God has called us to do. In those moments, we fail to believe that God is for our good and he's for our joy. And we say, no, God, I don't trust you. I don't trust your promises. I'm not sure doing the things that you've asked me to do are actually going to lead me to a better place. And I would just pause for a moment. Has, has there been times in your life where you found Jesus not to be a good friend? Has there been times where as you wander farther from the Lord, you have found yourself with greater joy? 
Has your relationship with God proven to be a wilderness for you? Has he broken his promises to you? Do you find that the more you lean into God in that relationship, the more disappointed with who he is that you find yourself to be? I just don't think that's the case. But in the moment, we're not thinking clearly. We just don't want to do what he's asked us to do. We won't give up the things that he's asked us to give up. And we find ourselves in open rebellion. And I just want to spend the rest of the time looking at five things. Hopefully, you'll see these directly in the text. What happens when we run? Here's the first. Verse 4, God pursues. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now, a couple things. That word hurled there, I just don't think it's the greatest translation because whenever you're dealing with a ship on water in a great storm, hurled tends to take on a different meaning. Wouldn't you agree? So, so in this case, just so we're clear, hurled is not what you're thinking hurled means. Hurled means God threw this storm at Jonah. In Samuel 18.11, we read that Saul hurled his spear at Jonah. He threw it at Jonah. This storm is thrown at Jonah. I'm really curious. I'd be curious to go back. Maybe this is one of those things you can do when you get to heaven to kind of review how things looked. I'm trying to figure out how big the storm was. Was it like 100 yards by 100 yards? And guys all around them were sailing around on calm seas. They were water skiing. They were doing whatever they do. And that storm was just on this boat. I don't know. But, but that storm was thrown directly at Jonah. There was no mistake God was on the move, and here's what I would tell you, sin always brings storms. If you live your life and you build your identity on anything but God, that's going to be revealed, that's going to be exposed when the storms come. God is the star of the show throughout the book of Jonah. Here we see him becoming active in the story. He says, I've called you to Nineveh. You've rebelled. I'm not going to let you go. God is going to continue to pursue his prophet. And most often, as Jonah is geographically moving west, that's usually not our issue. Our rebellion is usually not about a geographical change. It's about a movement of our heart. And I want to ensure, assure you in this moment, if you can identify areas in your heart where you're in rebellion against God, God's not going to leave that alone if you're a follower of his because he loves you. And he's going to pursue and he's going to come after some of you this week. And he says, I'm not going to let you continue down that path. I'm going to do what I need to do to get your attention because I love you. I won't let it go. Look at verse 5. Here's the second thing. God pursues... In verse 5, we see sometimes innocent people get hurt. It says this in verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So the thing that jumps out to me in this verse is this idea, what in the world did the sailors do? If the storm is hurled at Jonah, aren't they also suffering the consequences? And it says that the sailors were afraid. Okay, sailors afraid? of a storm? Like, how bad is the storm that sailors are afraid? That, that's like Marines that are scared. That just doesn't happen. That's like Olympic skiers scared of, like, Mount Cannonsburg. Like, it doesn't happen. Like, sailors shouldn't be afraid of a small storm, but they find themselves in the midst of the chaos that has been directed at Jonah because of his rebellion. And it's interesting, 
They each cried out to his own God. In a storm, where do you run? When things get difficult, when your life gets chaotic, when you find yourself in a storm, you're going to typically run to your God, be that alcohol, be that pleasure, be that anger, be that pride. Many of the storms in our lives come on us as consequences of our own sin. Sometimes we're just involved because of the brokenness in the world, of circumstances, of other people's sin, and we're dragged into a storm that we don't even know the cause. But I hope you see through the rest of this chapter, God's doing an incredible work in the storm. It's hurled at Jonah, but he's also doing a work in the lives of the sailors. Let's keep going. Here's a third thing. When we're in the middle of the storm, when we're in the middle of our rebellion, we can't see the danger. Look at the end of verse 5. But Jonah had gone down deep, or had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not per- perish. I just want you to notice the contrast that's going on right now between Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, and sailors who do not know the Lord. Jonah's unaware of the peril, he's asleep. The sailors are keenly aware of the danger that they're in. The sailors are fighting. They're throwing the cargo into the sea for the common good of everyone on board. Jonah is so self-absorbed in his own problems that he's not even coming alongside to help. The sailors pray to their gods. Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, he doesn't even pray. They've got to ask him to pray, and we see no indication that he ever does here in chapter 1. He will in 2. And then the sailors have a spiritual awareness, they see the supernatural in the storm. They say, this isn't a normal storm. There's something supernatural. God's got a hand in this. Jonah doesn't notice. Hey, Jonah, you're about to drive your life off a cliff, and sometimes when we're in rebellion, we just don't see the danger. It's interesting when the sailor says this, arise, call out to your God. The exact same language that we see in Jonah 1 verse 2 when Jonah said, arise, go to Nineveh. So in 1-2, Jonah has said, hey, prophet of the Lord, go save these pagan people. Here we're seeing the pagan sailors telling Jonah, arise, call out to your God. Can't see the danger. Verse 7, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell to Jonah. Well, now there's a surprise, right? I wonder when it was in the whole lot process that Jonah was like, this isn't going to end well for me. Do you think he really like drew his stick and it's like, wow, I'm shocked this is shorter than everybody else's. You think that's how it went? You would think at the beginning of this, he'd be like, no, 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 not me. He's blind to the danger. So the lot falls to, Noah, uh, to Jonah, verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? Like like they're just drilling him with questions now, right? Wouldn't you be? They're starting to realize that they're caught in the chaos of the moment because of Jonah's sin. Look what Jonah says. This is this verse in verse 9. Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Wow, that's quite a testimony. Because you're going the opposite direction the Lord sent you. Like, like, there seems to be a disconnect right now between who Jonah says that he is and what he's doing. Do you guys see that in the text? Or am I just like making that up? No, it's there. I, I fear the Lord. 
Uh, uh, oh, hey, Jonah, because you fear the Lord, where are you going? I thought I'd go away from the presence of the Lord. Absolute disconnect caused by the rebellion that he doesn't even see the hypocrisy of his actions against who he identifies with and who he says that he is. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the, man knew that he was, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Here's a fourth thing, verse 11. I think sometimes in our rebellion, we hit the point where we despair. Look what it says in verse 11. Then they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Verse 12, Jonah said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. There's that word hurl again. That means throw, okay? Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Here's something I didn't see in the text before I was studying this week. There's two phrases in that verse that jump out to me. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah's in despair. He says, throw me into the sea. But in these verses, I want you to notice what's not there. There's no words of repentance. There's no crying out that he has sinned against God. Jonah doesn't repent here in chapter 1. It's not there. So he's feeling despair and, and now he's overcome actually by concern for the other men who have been caught in the storm of his sin. And I started thinking about that this week. How many times in 10 or 11 years at this church have I sat in a counseling room with somebody who says, I just want the pain to stop. This addiction... It's destroying my life, it's destroying my relationships, it's, re it's destroying my family, it's breaking the hearts of my parents, and I need relief. And I'll do whatever it takes to make the pain stop. Help me stop the pain. And yet there's no repentance. There's no turning to God. I think sometimes we come to a church in a season of our lives where we're struggling. We, we, we understand that our life is broken. We understand that the circumstances or the consequences that we've created, be it by an addiction, be it by anger, be it why, whatever your sin of choice is, your rebellion, it has led you to a place of despair and you're looking around at all of the pain that you're causing, not just to yourself but to others, and you're saying, I just want it to stop. And God's saying, I get it, and I'm pursuing, but I need to keep going because there's something deeper here. Not only do I want to see your pain end, but I want to see your pain replaced with joy when your relationship is restored to me. Please don't settle in your circumstances for stopping the pain of the consequences of your sin. Look beyond that and say, there's a God who loves me that's pursuing me and he won't let me stop just there. He wants to bring me further into relationship 
with him. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9 says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's two types of sorrow. There's godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And there's worldly sorrow that just feels bad you got caught or for the pain. And Jonah's there. He's got worldly sorrow. He's got despair. And God's saying, no, we're going to push through this. I'm going to keep pursuing. I want to bring you to repentance because that's life-changing. And then the fifth thing, verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So I'm just, again, I don't know, maybe it's just like a 100-yard by 100-yard storm. And the guys are just, okay, we'll roll faster. We'll just roll faster. They don't want to throw Jonah overboard. They've got compassion towards him. Like, we'll just roll faster. And God's like, man, I really hope they don't get away. I hope they're not too strong. I think God was in control of the circumstance, right? And, and so they're rowing harder and harder. And God's like, I can just kind of keep moving the storm right on top of you. I'm not going to give you relief. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. So I want you to see the sequence. Pick Jonah up, throw him into the sea. Immediately, the sea quits raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Sea calms, and then the men made vows. And that reveals something. The men just recognized the God of Jonah. God made a move in these men's lives. Jonah ran from Nineveh because he didn't want to spread the word of the Lord to pagans. And in his darting the other way to Tarshish, what did God do? He saved pagan sailors. See, God's going to accomplish his purposes. And though these men thought that they were caught in a storm because of other men's sin, God even used those circumstances to bring them to repentance. Jonah's in the sea. We'll pick it up next week in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I just want to close by reading you a psalm that was written 300 years before this story, Psalm 107. I don't know who wrote it. It's anonymous. Listen to the words. Verse 23 of Psalm 107. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. The waves mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. The men's courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men who were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and God brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. And then it's interesting what the text says next. Psalm 107, 33, coming right out of that story, it says, God turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground. He takes a fruitful land and turns it into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. Is that the God we serve that turns water into deserts that 
takes a land that produces a harvest and turns it into a salty wilderness. Then it goes on and says, he turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. 300 years before Jonah, the psalmist is describing a scene very similar to what we find in Jonah. And he goes on and he makes this point, and here's what he says, God's going to do whatever it takes to get your attention to draw you to him. And there's this repeated phrase throughout Psalm 107. Psalm 107, 1, I'll give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness endures forever. So were you able to find yourself in the story? Are you Jonah? Are there areas of rebellion in your life? And maybe God's coming after you. Jonah's going to go farther and farther. It's going to get worse and worse until God gets a hold of his heart. Is that you? How far are you going to run? Or maybe you're just identifying with the sailors. It's not my problem. It's my husband's, man. That guy's a mess. Or maybe it's my wife or maybe it's my kid and the chaos in your life is because of someone else's sin. Could I just maybe caution you for a moment that even if that's true, even if that is the case, God's also working to do a work in your life through that situation? question is, will we acknowledge it? Will we bend the knee? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a familiar story. And my prayer for this season in our church that you would use a uh, rebellious prophet to grab the hearts of rebellious people. Father, don't let us get through this season just looking at a historical account of a prophet and what you were able to do in his life. Lord, let this penetrate our lives as well. Father, identify for these, for these here, for me, the areas in my life that need to change, the areas in my life that you want me to yield. Father, teach us to repent. It's in your name we pray. Amen.